0: All right, every day I come in here and I give you my opinion about stuff and I tell you how I see things, but today I really want to get your opinion and I will tell you why and explain it. Uh, you don't have to be a subscriber this time. I will give you an e- an email address you can write to or you can leave comments on Facebook if you're watching live, Facebook or YouTube. Stay tuned. I have a question I want to ask you. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-duckity-doo. ship shape tipsy topsy go around a zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day. Woo-hoo! Hooray, hooray! Yeah, it makes
1: me want to sing. To sing. Oh, hoorah, hooray! Oh, hooray!
0: All right, here we are already on the very brink and edge of the Clavenless weekend, standing at the precipice, looking down into almost eternal darkness, it looks like. But so stay tuned, because this is your last chance. Hold on with grip with your fingers to keep from falling into the Clavenless weekend. Brian Kilmead is here today. We've got, we taped an interview with him, but it was... I have to tell you a funny thing. He's written this uh, book, this really entertaining book, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans. It's about the Battle of New Orleans. I have to tell you, though, it's really funny... You know, Brian is the host of Fox and Friends. Obviously, you probably know him. And, you know, he's got a co-writer, Don Yeager. And when you're dealing with a TV guy who's got a co-writer, you don't know... If he actually knows what's in the book, you know, so I brought him on and I'm asking, I'm a little nervous because I know a lot about Andrew Jackson and I'm really interested in him. He's a fascinating character as we talk about. And so I asked him real questions about this and I'm terrified he's going to look at me and like, you know, uh, yeah, somebody else wrote this book. But turns out Brian is an actual historian, really knew his stuff and have had really imp- uh, passionate feelings about it. It's a terrific interview. So stay tuned for that. We will stay on uh, Facebook and YouTube and let you watch the whole thing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't subscribe. In fact, it should make you feel so guilty about not subscribing that weeping you come to the dailywire.com with your lousy 10 bucks and give us 10 bucks for to subscribe for a month or 100 bucks. You can subscribe for the entire year and get the Leftist Tears mug, which every time you mention Andrew Jackson, the Leftist Tears mug, automatic mug. It's a tumbler. What, what are you crazy? Does this does this look like a mug to you? It's <laughs> the leftist tears tumbler. Every time you mention Andrew Jackson, it fills up with leftist tears. Meanwhile, also speaking about tears, if you are in credit card debt, you have just discovered something that you didn't know before. The the interest rates on your credit card are extortionate. <laughs> they are really, really bad. You know, people don't read this stuff, but I mean it can be really high, it can be as up up to like 17%. And of course, the other thing, people don't understand interest rates, it starts to compile, so you got into a little bit of debt, you left things go, and suddenly you can just barely pay off the interest rate every month and you're not getting rid of the debt at all. Here is a trick. Consolidate all your uh, credit card payments and then get a loan from Lightstream. Lightstream will give you a low interest rate. as It could be as low as 5.5%, 5.49% APR with AutoPay and you could save thousands of dollars just in the interest alone. Loans come from 5000 to to $100,000, and there's no fees. Now, these are for people with good credit. This is not like, you know, a payday loan. This is for people who have decent credit, but you can choose the funding date as soon as the same day. You can see the interest rates before you apply. The application is 100% online. This is a division of SunTrust Bank. You can be confident you're working with one of the nation's largest and strongest financial institutions out there, Lightstream. You can apply today to get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way for my listeners with good credit to get this special interest rate discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Andrew. And you always want to tell them I sent you because that's the way we keep our sponsors and they're happy and we get to keep talking. That's lightstream.com slash Andrew. Now, I know you know how to spell Andrew. I mean, in spite of the gormless look on your faces, I know you can spell Andrew, but Lightstream is spelled L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash Andrew. This is subject to credit approval. Rates include a. Uh, 0.50% auto pay discount available only when you select auto pay prior to loan funding. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for important information about limits on Lightstream loans and same-day funding. A lot better than paying off those credit cards. People, people really don't read the small print on the credit card. It is like It really is like, it's, you know, you expect the goons to show up at your house and collect the debt. Do Lightstream. You will avoid all of that. Uh, all right. It's going to take me a while. I'm going to wind up to this question. I have a question I want to ask you. You can, if you're watching on Facebook, you can just put your comments right there. If you're on YouTube, you can put your comments there. If you're listening later on, instead of sending, I don't want you to have to be a subscriber. I want you to be able to uh, answer this no matter who you are. Write to aclavin at dailywire.com. How do you spell Clavin? There's no E's. There are no E's in Clavin. If you put E's in Clavin, I won't see it because there. are there are no ease. There even is no ease in Klevan, A K L A V A N, at DailyWire.com. Now, here's the thing that this is this really is bothering me. I got to be honest. And instead of just telling you, you know, yesterday I kind of told you what I think about all this. But I, instead of just telling you, I want to hear what you think because I really wonder. I wonder about this. And the only time I ever get to hear from you is in the mailbag, and you're asking me questions. But I, I just want an answer on this. It has really disturbed me what's happened with this gun debate. I thought that CNN was absolutely despicable and then ABC picked it up and the networks picked it up and basically the whole press you used... These traumatized children and their silly young pe- person's left-wing ideas, you know, I think it was Winston Churchill who said, if you're not a liberal when you're young, you have no heart, and if you're a liberal, still a liberal, when you're older, you have no brain, so these kids are liberal kids, they're crying, they're upset, some of them are very media savvy, like that kid Hog. you know, it, it, it's kind of unappealing to me. The, the polls show, the polls show that this isn't working, that most people think what is to me the obvious case that the shooting in Florida was a failure of government to do its job. Doesn't matter. Now Dick's and Walmart, these two big sporting goods stores, they sell guns. They say, well, we're not going to sell automatic weapons and we're not going to sell we're not going to sell AR-15s, or we're not going to sell them to people who are 18. They're making their own rules about this. Everybody has been scared by this. And I wonder with businesses all the time why they do this. And I think one answer is because they're looking for younger people, and younger people because they're not as uh, educated as older people. They haven't lived. They haven't learned stuff. They tend to be more liberal. And then as you learn stuff, you say, oh, I get it. There's a reason people have been thinking this stuff since Aristotle. There's a reason not to change things that are working. But I'm just really disappointed. And Yesterday, Donald Trump had this meeting, and with you know a bipartisan collection of senators. And I'm really impressed that Trump does this. let me let me say this out front. You know, he's talked about the art of the deal. He leaves the camera on. He's very good at moderating these meetings. He talks to people, he brings people out. but but he says things in these meetings that sometimes make the hair on my arm stand stand up. They, it would stand up on my head, but, you know, I mean, there's only so much I can do. But <laughs> he, the, he says these things, like in the immigration meeting, he said, you make, you make the a law and I'll sign it. You know, I'll take the heat. And I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, really? You, t- you campaigned? You promised us we're going to build a wall. These people are heroin addicts. They're drug dealers. You know, I'm going to keep everything out. And then you're saying, oh, whatever you guys come up with, I'm going to sign it. I thought, eh, not so much. Now, later, he backtracked and look, you know, I don't overreact to anything Trump says because I'm never sure what he means, and he is a deal maker. And for instance, he then offered, it was almost two million people amnesty, but he set terms that maybe he knew the Democrats wouldn't go for. So now he's in the political position where he can say, "Hey, I offered you two million. That was more than Obama offered, and you didn't show up. Your fault." You know, so maybe it's it's all politics. But yesterday he held this meeting on guns. And I was reminded of something he said about guns during the campaign uh, when he talked about his voters' loyalty. And this is what I'm trying to get at. This is cut number one. You'll all remember this.
1: And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. (laughs)
0: Okay, so a lot of people said he could shoot people. That was what he said about guns then. So now he's standing around and listening, and he keeps the camera on. Again, like I said, he's practicing the art of the deal. And John Nolte said on Twitter the other day, I I have a 72-hour rule before I react to anything he says, because sometimes what he says doesn't matter. But one of the three things he did at this meeting, one, he kept picking on the Republicans for being in league with the NRA. This is the guy who got, I think, the earliest endorsement from the NRA of any candidate ever— And he kept, like, slapping the Republicans around about being in league with the NRA. Here's just a portion of this, cut number two.
1: The reason I had lunch with the NRA on Sunday, I called him. I said, you got to come over. I said, fellas, we got to do something. And they do have great power. I agree with that. They have great power over you people. They have less power over me. I don't need it. What do I need? But but I tell you, they are well-meaning. And I said to him, very nice. I said, fellas, we got to do something. We can't keep restricting, and we can't keep, we have to do what's right.
0: So, first of all, this whole idea that we have to do something, I'm convinced. The second, you know, again, the argument should be, the argument is not whether you can make the world safer. The argument is not whether it's a nice thing to do. The argument is whether you want to be a free people who can defend themselves in the case of tyranny. That's why we have guns. We have guns so we can defend ourselves. All the celebrities who are anti-gun, are surrounded by guns. We can't afford their bodyguards. We just want the guns so we can protect ourselves—not just protect ourselves from the bad guys, but protect ourselves for, from the people who would come and, for instance, take our guns in spite of the Constitution, ignore the right. So when I hear him saying we have to do something, I think, why? Why do we have to do something? The, you know, gun violence is down. The homicide rate is down. Uh, schools are safer than they were in the 1990s. This is all ginned up by the press. It's all emotional nonsense. Why do we have to do something? Okay. So then this is the thing that set Twitter absolutely ablaze was they started talking about guns for the mentally ill. And of course, mentally ill people should not have guns. There should be background checks. There should be ways of uh, of testing. There's been a, an idea floated. I think David French did it over at National Review where he talked about a way that, you know, if you if your brother is nuts, you can call up and say this guy should not have a gun and you can confiscate guns. So Trump did this. And I'm maybe it's just big mouth, but he said this thing about due process. This is uh, uh, cut number
1: four. Or might take the firearms first and then go to court, because that's another system, because a lot of times, by the time you go to court, it takes so long to go to court to get the due process procedures. Uh, I like taking the guns early, like in this crazy man's case that just took place in Florida. He had a lot of firearms, they saw everything. To go to court would have taken a long time. So you could do exactly what you're saying, but take the guns first, go through due process second.
0: Now, of course, this there's, there's no such thing as going through due process second, of course. The, you know That's not the way the law works. But let him, let's give it a little bit, because that was taken out and, and put on Twitter, and everybody went nuts. But let, let him explain it a little bit more. This is him talking about taking guns from the mentally ill. It's Cup 3. This is a
1: piece of legislation. you have said. to do something about the mentally ill not being able to buy a gun. I mean, they have so many checks and balances that you could be mentally ill and it takes you six months before you can prohibit them. So we have to do something very decisive. Number one, you can take the guns away immediately from people that you can judge easily are mentally ill, like this guy. You know, the, the police saw that he was a problem. They didn't take any guns away. Now, that could have been policing. I think they should have taken them away anyway.
0: Now, a lot of different reactions to this. A lot of people screaming. Tom McGuire, a blogger, uh, said in my humble opinion, Trump misunderstood or misstated gun violence restraining orders. The procedure would be a court order, confiscation, and then a hearing to end or extend the order. Uh, Trump conflated hearing the hearing with due process. That's his opinion, that's his interpretation of it. And just remember, the thing about due process is like when they said, you know, we just wanna take guns away from people on the no-fly list. They can put anybody on the no-fly list. That's some bureaucrat just says, yeah, you're a terrorist. Plenty of innocent people have been put on the no-fly list. That doesn't mean they lose their constitutional rights. Mentally ill. Anybody can say you're mentally ill. Remember uh, Miracle on 34th Street where they tried to prove that Santa Claus was mentally ill? If they can take Santa Claus's guns away, they can take your guns away. But no, anybody, in all seriousness, anybody can say that you're mentally ill and then you, you shouldn't lose your due process rights. Ben Sass from Nebraska, is never a big Trump fan, he said strong leaders don't automatically agree with the last thing that was said to them. We have the Second Amendment and due process of law for a reason. We're not ditching any constitutional protections simply because the last person the president <laughs> talked to today doesn't like them. And sometimes it does seem like that. Uh, Tom Tillis... A Republican from North Carolina said, I don't think that he was saying that there's a place where you suspend the Constitution and suspend due process. I don't just believe that. I know you heard the words. I just don't believe in my heart of hearts that that's exactly what he meant. Always a problem with Trump. When Trump is talking off the cuff, he says stuff you think like, I don't know. The the the, uh, the thing that kind of went up my spine was when he was sitting with Diane Feinstein. Diane Feinstein wants to ban, it, basically she would. she just wants to get her hooks in the Second Amendment and destroy it. That's really what she wants to do. Now, she's in trouble. The Democrat Party isn't endorsing her for another run. They're saying she's not far left enough, which is amazing. But, you know, she she wants to ban especially AR-15s. That's her foothold. That's the foot in the door of the Second Amendment. She wants to get in. And they're talking about a bill that's been knocking around for five years for background checks. And it has both Democrat and Republican support, and he's talking about tacking things on to this bill, and he's going back and forth with this Democrat senator, and Diane Feinstein is sitting next to him when he says, let's talk about what she wants as well.
1: Just doing something on this background check uh, issue and using that as a base, and then I would like to add some of these other things we've talked about, I think would make a major difference. So if you could add that school, to this bill, this. that would be great, <clears throat> Diane. If there you really could add what you have also and I think you can into the bill. Yeah. So, Joe, are you ready? Can you do that, Joe? Can you do that, Pat? Can you add some of the things you're not going to agree with? If you, you help. Well, no, I'll help. But can you add what Amy and what Diane have? Can and, we add them in? And I know you can add what John. Yeah, has. I have another.
0: Did you see Feinstein's reaction? I have never seen that kind of glee. We got a close-up of it. Look at this. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and
2: witty and gay.
0: So, I mean, mean, he certainly made one of the leftist senators happy, and you could see the looks of discomfort on the Republicans' faces. Now look, Trump ran as a different kind of guy, and I respect that. I really do. I have even—you know that I have troubles with his lack of civility, but I have even set those aside because I feel that his lack of civility serves to shatter political correctness, which I think is a mental prison. Again. You you know, the one thing you have never heard me do, you've never heard me do the balls and strikes thing. You know, you've never heard me do the good Trump, bad Trump, because I don't believe politics works like that. I believe politics is a compromise game. I believe you lose some, you win some. I want to see the ball moving toward the freedom goal line all the time. If it moves one yard when I wanted it to move 10, that's too bad, but I'll take the one yard. If it moves five yards down and three yards back. I get it. That's politics. It's not all about everything Donald Trump says at every minute. It's not all about everything he gets at every minute. My question to you is this. I read the stuff you write on Facebook and sometimes on YouTube as well. I hear how passionate you are about Donald Trump. I hear you saying, God bless our president. I hear every time I criticize him that you come after me and you say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I I hear it. Is, Is he right? Is there a point Is there no point, when he said he would shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and you would still be loyal to him, is that true? I mean, is there a point where it would be enough? This is, it's just a speculative question. I'm not saying he's coming after your guns. I am not saying that. I know that there's a long, long uh, road between Trump's lip and, you know, the, the real world. I get it, I do. But I wanna know what he would have to do to lose your loyalty if you're a Trump supporter or if you if you hate the guy, what he, you know, what what would it take for you to to bring you around? Because I think his accomplishments have been amazing. His conservative accomplishments in the first year have been amazing, and that's why I don't. That's why I don't ball and strike him because I think he's doing a good job. But when he says stuff like this, I think it really. You know, really, no due process to take away your guns? Really, you're gonna ban AR-15s? Diane Feinstein is dancing around the room? Really, you know, and is there, and, and the NRA supported you and now you're gonna browbeat, and he really did. He did it throughout that meeting. You're gonna browbeat Republicans for being servants of the NRA, which isn't true. I mean, I, obviously they give, the NRA gives money to people who support their cause, but people don't support their cause to get the money. I mean, they're, they, that's, they're standing on their principle, and the NRA says, good. I mean, obviously, maybe there's some people who are bought off who sell their principle, but I don't think that that's the norm. So what is he talking about? And when he falls into this, I mean, why are we even having this discussion when the problem is really government malfeasance? I, I just want to know, is, did, did this bother you as it, as it did bother me? And is there a point? Is there a point? where you would just say, you know what, we elected you, pal, we can unelect you as well. So leave your comments on Facebook if you're watching live or on YouTube, or if you're not, write to me, aklaven at dailywire.com. The question is, what would it take for you to stop being loyal to Donald Trump? Is there anything that would he could do, uh, especially on this issue of guns, that would make you say, you know what, you have lost your way? A. Uh, Clavin, A-K-L-A-V-A-N, at Daily. Wire.com Because I keep saying, I keep saying the same thing. I keep saying, follow the principle, not the man, because men you know are, are sinful and they will lead you astray. Put not your faith in princes. I keep saying the same thing, but maybe you're thinking, eh, you know, he's, he's done pretty well, I do put my faith in him. Maybe that's the way you feel. I just wanna know, I mean, I really do. And it, you know, he lost uh, his, Hope Hicks uh, said she was resigning. Kind of an interesting story, because nobody knows, she's been saying she wanted to resign, people keep saying that she's been telling him this for weeks. But she apparently is one of his closest advisors, along with his family, and he's going to get isolated. You know, people can't stay in this um, heightened world of the White House for too long. And they say she was questioned, you know, I have to just comment on this as a little bit of a tangent. She was questioned for nine hours by the House Intelligence Committee on this Russia probe. And she said she answered any questions that took place during the campaign, which was when Russia collusion could have taken place. But once she got into the White House, she didn't claim executive privilege, but she said, I'm not answering those questions. I'm a confidant of the president, and he's got to be able to have confidential advisors without my coming in here and testifying. So she didn't do it. And of course, Adam Schiff immediately read that in the worst possible way in his McCarthyite way. However, they did get this one admission out of her where they got her in one of those traps lawyers get you into, and they said, have you ever been asked to lie for the president? And she said, I've told some white lies. And this made the headline in the Daily in the New York Times, a former newspaper. and but. Is there a White House communications director who has not told white lies for the president? So, in other words, she was not good enough at this game of being questioned to, manip- to maneuver out of the hole they got her in. They got her in a corner, and she had to say, in order not to perjure herself, she had to say, yeah, I've told white lies. Do people even know what a white lie is? A white lie is a harmless lie. A uh, white lie is like your wife comes to you and says she's just spent 50 bucks on a hat and she can't get the money back, and she says, does this look all right? And you say... Yeah, you know, that's a white lie. That's no, seriously, that's what a white lie is. A white lie is not, you know, we did not collude with the Russians. That's not a white lie. A white lie is, yeah, Donald Trump, you know, read that memo, but he maybe he didn't. He just told him about it. That's what a white lie is. So Every single communications director ever on earth, anyone who's ever been in politics, has told white lies to the press. So that was, like a, to me, a non-headline, but they got her. You know, they just nailed her on it. Uh, anyway, let me know how you feel about this. When I say don't follow people, follow principles, do you think to yourself, no, I will follow Donald Trump wherever he goes. I want more Trump. You know, they had that CPAC meeting. Something like 75% of the people said they love Trump and that's the base and they're going to go with Trump. Is there a point? I mean, do you trust him? Is there a point where he just goes too far, offers too many illegal immigrants um, uh, amnesty, wants your guns, something? Is there something he could say that would turn you against him? Let me know. Let me know your thoughts about it. Because the funny thing is, is, you know, I listen to people on TV and on talk shows and on podcasts and they all sound very definitive. But when I go out and talk to people, you know, as I'm traveling around, they have very nuanced, intelligent views. So I'd like to hear what you think. All right, we're going to bring this uh, interview with Brian Kilmeade on. and I, he's, His book is called Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans. And I, I was joking with him. This is about the Battle of New Orleans and what Andrew Jackson accomplished. It really was an amazing, amazing battle. And, I, you know, I, I joked with him in the course of this interview uh, that people are so ill-educated now that I wouldn't even want to ask them when the War of 1812 took pl- took place. And I, when I was a kid, th- this song about the Battle of New Orleans was, I mean, I was a tiny little kid, but it was number one on the box office charts. And teenagers in the 50s and 60s, when I was, uh, like, I wasn't a teen yet, but I was a little kid, loved this song. I mean, this is how imbued we were with American history. This is how, m- how much American history surrounded. Here's just a quick a uh, little cut of the song, The Battle of New Orleans.
1: In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down a mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming. There wasn't as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico.
0: So you couldn't make that song a hit today, but Brian Kilmeade, uh, the host of course of Fox and Friends, he's also the author of George Washington's Secret Six and Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli uh, Pirates. This book, as I say, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans. He talks about it really well. It's really interesting. So find out what the miracle of New Orleans was in this interview with Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed the book and. Uh, it comes with a blurb from Brad Thor, who says it's uh, a stay-up-all-night, like a stay-up-all-night thriller. And if anybody knows about stay-up-all-night thrillers, it's Brad. Uh, right. Let, let's let's start with this. Why why Andrew Jackson? What drew you to Andrew Jackson?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing I, I thought, I did wrote two books about uh, sports and what sport how sports helped you in life. Uh, the games do count. It's how you play the game. And I thought, you know, I wanted to be able to use that, be able to speak to kids, groups, and teams. About you know you don't have to be a superstar your you know your payment uh, your success could be delayed, and after doing that and if you putting in a few years seeing how Fox took shape of a solid news network and I originally came here doing sports say all right I'm done with books but at the same time my passion was always history, and I stumbled onto George Washington spying, and for 20 years I studied it talked to people were in my own backyard could not believe it did it actually existed it's actually more complicated than I, than I could have imagined. And then I finally just said, you know what, I'm gonna I saw Bill O'Reilly's success with his books. I'm so passionate about it. I go, I'll put it out. Even if five people read it, it's something I wanted to accomplish. And I wanted to bring something new to the story, and there's still so much left to uncover. So that went well. And they say, listen, you got you gotta go back and do this if you're passionate about it. So I came to Thomas Jefferson Triple E Pirates. So the next and and that went well because it was our first war on terror against Islamic right. extremists. And Jefferson did so much that no one really focuses on that. So I said, let me grab something no one's really looking at led me to the War of 1812, and I thought there's got to be something there. Originally said, Battle of Baltimore, most intriguing. The war turned around on it. We were debating the national anthem at the time, whether it was any good. And then I, said, they, I was urged, check out Battle of New Orleans. And when I looked at Battle of New Orleans, who Andrew Jackson was to lead us to that success, how unthinkable and unexpe- unexpected the victory was and thorough. And then being that you and I get to meet a lot of people in the military, they say at war colleges they still teach it, I said, I got to do this story. And that's what really led me to it. That's very cool.
0: I mean, you know, the Jefferson book had a relevance today. To today, because of the war on terror. When I opened this book, I don't know whether how this got in there, but this billion-dollar Donald uh, Trump for president fell out of the book. This is actually true. (laughs) (laughs) Is it true? It's absolutely true. It's not mine. I don't know where it (laughs) came from. But but, you know, I was thinking. I'm I'm pretty fascinated by Andrew Jackson too, and he's a very controversial figure with with good reason. But one of the reasons he was controversial is because the the founding generation kind of looked at him and thought, this guy's a nobody. He's a bore. He's he's got from absolutely no comes from nothing. He has no heritage. Were you thinking at all of Trump uh, and the reaction of intellectuals to him when you picked him?
2: Yeah, Andrew, great point uh, about Jefferson, too. Not only were we in the war on terror, but we got into this Libya situation mm-hmm. while I was studying the Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli pirates. And, you know, the decisive battle is at Derna right outside Benghazi and right near Tripoli. That was where Libya was called Tripoli back then. Mm-hmm. And then here I start doing this book, and Donald Trump was hosting The Apprentice. So I had no idea about the comparisons. Oh wow! But okay. then when you look into his background and you see a 14-year-old orphan already volunteered to fight in the war that hated the British – and you see the founding fathers were pretty much all knew each other in Philadelphia, New York, and Virginia, and this outside of this hick that should have been a vagrant or a criminal ends up being a lawyer, a judge, a congressman, a senator, a militia general, and a two-term president. I go, wait a second. Isn't that the American success story? We believe, we're into that naive notion that we can achieve anything we want, no guarantees, but the opportunity to be successful. And then when you see the fact that uh, he was so disdained, John Quincy Adams didn't even stay in the White House for the handoff, nor did he show up at the inaugural. No one also thought Andrew Jackson would win. No one thought Thomas uh, and uh, Donald Trump would win. When Donald Trump was, was pushed back by his own party, he brought his case to the people. Guess who did that? Andrew Jackson was the first to go to the masses and ignore Virginia. And in the beginning, the founding fathers were no part of him, but he had the confidence to do his own thing. I think it's safe to say... Donald Trump has the confidence to do his own thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a pretty pretty uncontroversial statement, probably. Um, yes, thank you.
0: <laughs> now, before the, the uh, War of 1812 and the Battle of New Orleans, there was a, an incredibly uh, important battle um, at Horseshoe Bend. Is that what it was called? Was it yeah. Horseshoe? Can you tell a little bit about that just to set up who this guy was? Because, as you say, he came out of uh, nowhere, but Horseshoe Bend was right. a big deal.
2: Well, a couple of things. Number one, it was not a surprise that George Washington was picked to lead us in the Revolutionary War because he was the guy who had the military background. His brother served in the military, who was a colonel fighting in the French-Indian War, made his mistakes, and people could see the template. And they thought, well, if we got to win, we got to go with Washington. Sure. Nobody thought that this backwoods lawyer, uh, this self-styled backwoodsman, with no political connections would ever be a, sig- a significant successful general when all the other generals seemed to fail and be ill-equipped it was Andrew Jackson who said, look at me he was this leader that was feared yet revered they feared letting him down. he would stand up to the toughest person fight on the front lines, never felt he would ever get touched much like Grant, much like Washington. they would be fearless because they j- just thought their destiny was great or if they were going to die This is where they wanted to do it. So to prove himself, one of the things he did is fight at Horseshoe, what they call his Battle of Horseshoe Bend. And by the way, he did it with a bullet in him. He -hmm. was in a duel because he never took a backward step his entire life, was a second, stepped in and took a bullet. And uh, they wanted to take his arm off. He battled through it, ends up leading his unit, 1,400-man unit, to take on these Native Americans who were fueled, inspired, and radicalized by the British to fight us. And he was getting revenge, really, after they massacred a bunch of American settlers who didn't have guns or weapons. And what they did to butcher them were out of the page that we see of ISIS today. So I don't want to go into details, but it is brutal that I even left out. So when this battle went on, uh, it was Jackson's men who took the battle to the premier fighting force, uh, the premier fighting force among the American Indians, and took them out. And uh, when people are critical of uh, President, now the soon-to-be President, uh, Andrew Jackson, and they say, "Well, it's the way he treated Native Americans." I don't use this as an example. This was a fight, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and this was uh, this was an order given. And when you fight, and you with Jackson, the goal is to win. Yeah,
0: and and it changed. It virtually ended the Indian Wars. I mean, it was really a turning point in American history. Um, so now nowadays, the way education is, I would be afraid to ask a student. Uh, when the War of 1812 was, <laughs> but I think I think it would yeah. be it would be good if you it could explain what the War of 1812 was. What was at issue?
2: Well, listen, I wouldn't even blame students from uh, our generation, previous generations, because we didn't learn much about it. Uh, But I had a chance to take a tour through the White House, and they showed me the burn marks that still exist intentionally with what was left of the White House after the British burned it to the ground. So you walk up right by the bowling alley, and you see these burn marks. And I got some pictures, and I think they're still on my website on BrianKilme.com. You see the burn marks, and it's a reminder how fragile, even though we feel strong, how fragile our country is and was. So picture this. Simple. We win the Revolutionary War. The British never accept it. They don't adhere to anything in the almost anything to the Treaty of Paris. They want us to fail. And guess what? So does everybody else. Because if we are successful and this election thing takes root, if you're in the king business, it's not really good. They don't run effective campaigns for renewal. So they didn't want us to be successful. They did not want us to be free. And other colonies didn't. We want their other colonies to get the same idea. So they harassed us at sea. They blocked our shipping lanes when possible. And they would also take our guys uh, take our guys off their ships and say, we need you to fight and come up with some stupid excuse. They called it impressment that you really are British. So they're fighting the French. They're running out of people. So they're impressing our uh, people, taking them off our boats, whether they were civilians or military vessels. Meanwhile, they never left the Midwest, kept harassing us through Native Americans, sometimes directly with them in the Midwest and down south, and when the so-called Warhawks got elected, there was a quick vote, and they said to Madison, listen, Madison, we have to fight the British. The world thinks we're a bunch of patsies. We have to stand up and take them on. Now, the problem was, is that they're the number one military in the world, economic as well as uh, defense, and we're not, we don't have a standing army, not much of a navy. So when the Warhawks vote, they actually vote for war, 1913 in the Senate, and I believe 79 uh, to 49 in the House, we got a war and we think it's gonna end quick. We're gonna show, we're gonna fight, it's gonna be over. British go, no, uh, we're taking you on. And not only did they take us on, they basically destroyed us. The whole East Coast gets uh, essentially uh, terrorized. It's left almost undefensed because for some reason, uh, Ma- uh, Madison and Armstrong, this defense secretary, later would be Monroe, thought it would be good a idea, good idea to take what we have of an army and fight, fight them in Canada. Good, fantastic. <laughs> so not only are we fighting in the wrong country, We're actually losing in the wrong country, and we're not defensed here. And it was not until Jackson and a few others got involved where things turned around. And the decisive thing was the one that was the most ominous, and that was when the British did something that in war etiquette they shouldn't have done, and that's you burn the nation's capital. They didn't burn London. They didn't burn Paris. But really, you burn Washington? They go in there. They overrun a militia relatively easily and they burn the whole place to the ground in fact if it wasn't for this tornado still unexplainable that comes out and blows the british out of the city (laughs) and puts out most of the fire we would have had absolutely nothing left so after that a lot of those people on the sidelines said all right we're in this is a fight for our nation and the first time we showed some backbone and and a way to win was the battle of baltimore when we went and shot the guy that actually led the invasion uh uh general ross Uh, admiral ross excuse me he led the invasion into washington he'd be the first one we killed coincidentally and then the british don't do anything without a leader so they were helpless on the ground and in the waters the bombs burst in real air francis guy key recorded it all the flag was still there fort mchenry stood the tide the british left the beginning of the turning tide in the war amazing and so that
0: was it and so and it all culminates how did it all wind up in new orleans
2: Uh, Very interesting. And it's a great question. When we were learned in school and it's not necessarily wrong, is that uh, the Treaty of Ghent was signed. The war was ended. We didn't have to fight the battle. It was a great win. It was amazing. It was a great message to send to the rest of the world. We did not have to fight it. Well, it's not true, and thanks to Ron Drez, a decorator Marine and historian, he found paperwork that revealed the British planned it on holding it, stopping America from growing past the Mississippi, and flipping the Louisiana Purchase because they felt as though Napoleon had no right to sell it yeah. to us because he basically got it, took it, and flipped it, took the cash to fight the British. Get it? So they were going to do all that. Jefferson knew it. He was in retirement, obviously, watching closely. Madison knew it, and Jackson knew it. And Jackson, 25 years later, when he came back, and they said, "Great win, General." But even after he was president, but you know, you didn't have to win. He goes, "Oh yeah, Pakenham and his uh, Wellington's Invincibles—that was the nickname of the of the army—they wiped out, would have held and stopped us from growing past the Mississippi almost immediately. They would have left us prisoners in our own country because remember, uh, the Spanish occupied Florida, and Jackson took care of that in 1818. And it really was. I mean, you call you you call the book Andrew.
0: Jackson and the miracle of New Orleans, it really was a, a come-from-behind win, to use the sports uh, analogy. It really was an amazing victory.
2: Out number two to one. Uh, with an experienced infantry that just destroyed Napoleon uh, a year before, led by Wellington's Invincibles, but not Wellington. He sent his brother-in-law, who was a very respected General Packingham, who was decorated. And they said, he said, I don't want to go. And he said, well, if you go, I'll give you New Orleans. The British said, well, that sounds great. I'll go there right before Christmas. We'll party. Many of the officers brought their wives. However, they never met a guy like Jackson. And Jackson won in there, had his immediate draft. People volunteered. Next thing you know, he went from 1,400 to 5,000. And you'll love this, Andrew, is that this is a uniquely American army. Choctaw Indians, Cherokee Indians, uh, uh, pirates, uh, free men of color, all fought, paid the same, fed the same, uh, depended on the same, along with his 1,400-men militia, which included Tennessee, Tennessee riflemen and Kentucky uh, sharpshooters. And together, they were able to blow away the British in under 45 minutes because the British moved straight ahead. We dug in behind these berms. We dug a canal within three weeks, and they had to cross the canal and scale the berm, and they never got close. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing story. I'm running out of time. I Just if
0: I can ask one last question. You know, this was obviously what uh, vaulted Andrew Jackson into the presidential material When you look back, you know, Dinesh D'Souza uh, has been very hard on Andrew Jackson. I felt I I love Dinesh, but I felt he was unfair to him. Uh, When you look back on Jackson's presidency, I know it's it's a mixed bag. But how do you feel about his legacy?
2: Not only that, not only his eight years, I found out with Martin Van Buren, he had his protege next. John Tyler Mm -hmm. took over. Uh, He would actually be a president that Jackson heavily influenced. He actually influenced influenced James Polk. This guy had more influence over maybe 30 years Mm -hmm. than anybody. He was definitive. He struck up up for the little guy. He uh, feared uh, a national bank, as you know. Uh, He took on his enemy. He cajoled for legislation. Uh, He threatened. He pushed. And he respected the process, loved the country. His method was something very similar to what Trump is trying to do, what FDR did. And it was extremely effective for an agenda, I think, that is uniquely pro-American. Even though he was the founder of the Democratic Party, I don't think he was necessarily a Democrat that we know today. Which, by the way, the Democrats are walking away from him. I'll add this. I focused on an area, because when I started studying the biographies on his life, I thought they were so good and so thorough, I knew for sure I couldn't match it. So I just wanted to focus on this one area. But I, I think one thing that stands out is that Truman, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan, Abraham Lincoln, all had one thing in common. They loved and studied Jackson. Mm-hmm. Reagan insisted on having a picture taken with him before the World War II. FDR insisted on not with taking his braces, unlocking them, and walking up the Hermitage steps, which was his home. Truman kept a figurine on his desk. And Reagan said, my first picture as president, I went in front of the statue of the White House. Mm -hmm. And I ask you, I am not as smart as any of those men, nor will be as accomplished, but they were tremendous people and impacts on history. They're not stupid people. What do they know that maybe the historians of today who know everything (laughs) don't know? I'm gonna go with those guys. Diverse school of thought, different parties, understood what the presidency was, and were all of Jackson.
0: That's that's great. Brian Kilmeade writing with Don Yeager, Andrew Jackson, The Miracle of New Orleans. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, oh, you wanted to mention your, your signing. You're doing some signings.
2: Yeah. I know you guys are going to be posted for a while, but if you have a chance to if uh, come out to North Vale, New Jersey, books and greetings on March 1st, Thursday at 7. I'll be 630. I'll be there. And on Friday, heading out to Atlanta to visit my WSB listeners. On March 2nd, that'll be 7 o'clock in Marietta, Georgia, at the Barnes & Noble there. And on the 8th, I'll be in uh, Ohio, at Beaver Creek, Ohio, at Books & Company, visiting my WHIO uh, listeners. So it's it's been fun, and thanks so much for the great questions and for reading the book, Andrew. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I'll talk to you again. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Really entertaining interview, I thought, just in, in a great way to learn about Andrew Jackson, if you don't know anything about him, uh, or even if you do and want to know more. Stuff I like. Stuff I like, stuff I like, beat. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> See, we only, have, we only have the highest production values here, folks. <laughs> now you've killed me. I can't get through this. <laughs> I was complaining that we didn't have music for stuff I like, and I was singing, so they put it on there, and I think it works perfectly. I <laughs> think. Stuff I
1: like, stuff I like. I
0: love it. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I want to talk about a film that has been remade about four or five times in different ways, Uh, and it was based on a play called Parfumery, a Hungarian play, and the movie, the first movie version is called Shop Around the Corner, 1940, Ernest Lubitsch, one of the great uh, directors, had Margaret Sullivan and James Stewart in it, and the premise is they're in a little shop in Hungary, Budapest, and... Stewart and Margaret Sullivan are working there and they don't like each other, but they have pen pals whom they're falling in love with. And of course, the pen pals are in each other. You know, they're actually falling in love with each other without knowing it while they don't like each other. And here's just a little exchange where Margaret Sullivan tries to make up to James Stewart, tries to be nice to him, and she's talking about Me Too, uh, how she how she appreciates the fact that he doesn't put his hands on her.
1: No matter what anybody else says against you, I think you're a gentleman. I uh-huh. Try to be. And
0: oh, Mr. Krolick, you have no idea what that means to a working girl. What a girl goes through in some shops. Now, take, for instance, when I was with Feldish Brothers and Sons. Well, the sons were all right, but the brothers, Mr. Krolick. And that's why I like it here so much. When you say, Miss Novak, let's go into the stockroom and put some bags on the shelf. Well, you really want to put some bags on the shelf. And that's my idea of a gentleman.
1: Well, I just don't believe in mixing bags of pleasure. <laughs>
0: It's a very funny movie and a very sweet movie and has a wonderful atmosphere of Christmas uh, in Budapest with the snow, and it's really, really a nice Christmas movie. It was made into a musical called She Loves Me um, with lyrics by Sheldon Harnick, who I believe went on to write uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Jerry Bach. And here's just a brief clip of this. I, I've always had a sort of affection for it. My father just loved this musical. I, I, I don't think it's one of the greats ever, but it does have the same kind of sweet atmosphere. And here's the moment where this guy realizes who he has been writing to these, these, uh, these emails, who has been writing these letters to, who his pen palette is, and he reacts.
1: She loves me, and to my amazement, I love it. Knowing that she loves me. She loves me. True, she doesn't show it. How could she when she
2: doesn't know it? Yesterday she loathed me. Now, today she likes me.
1: And tomorrow,
2: tomorrow.
1: The thing that matters. And matters, are improving daily.
0: Now, the other remake, musical remake, was called In the Good Old Summertime with Judy Garland and Van Johnson. And what I the only thing I want to mention about this, I, I do have something to say about this film because it really interests me. About the story, it really interests me. In the good old summertime, the only thing about this is that the, a song that was cut out, there was a song uh, called Last Night When We Were Young, which was written by two of the great American songwriters, Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg. And this was Judy Garland's favorite song. And it was in another movie called Metropolitan. It was cut out of that, and it was put into this movie in the good old summertime, and it was cut out of this again. But it. it, it it is preserved. I'll just play a little bit of it, but you can get it on YouTube. And if you her voice is so great, and you can tell she loves the song. She is, it's a deep dive into the feeling of the song. Just listen to a little min, minute of it. Last
1: night, when we were young, love was a star, a song unsung.
0: It's just a a beautiful, beautiful piece of music, a beautiful lyric, and she's just, it's worth watching. Turn it on, they cut it out of the movie, but she just loves the song, and she's totally into it. And of course, the other version of this is you've got *Mail*, which was by Nora and Delia Efron, and had uh, the, it, it's a, it's only a good movie. It's a, it's a it's a fun movie, a sweet movie uh, to watch on a weekend with your your loved one or something like that. But it does have this one great scene. What Nora Efron was always good about was the and Delia Efron were always good about is the difference between men and women. The thing, the little funny things that separate men and women. There's a lot of affection for men in their writing, which I always liked. But they have this one scene that I guess is a famous scene where. Meg Ryan and uh, Tom Hanks are writing emails to each other without knowing that they are, they're having a war between them uh, in the the bookstore business, but in the emails, they're falling in love, and he gives her advice from The Godfather, and she just says, what is it with men and The Godfather? It's a terrific scene. What is it
1: with men? What is it with men and The Godfather? Hello. Oh, come on. Hello. Well... Oh, uh, what can I... Michael, come on. The Godfather is the I Ching. The Godfather is the sum of all wisdom. Uh, huh. The Godfather is the answer to any question. What should I pack for my summer vacation? Leave the gun, um, take the canoe. What day of the week is it? Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday. The answer to your question is go to the mattresses. Go to the mattresses. You're at war. It's not personal, it's business. It's not personal, it's business. business. Recite that to yourself every time you feel you're losing your nerve.
0: <laughs> that's great. It's a great. That's a great scene. A really well-written scene. Um... The thing that I like about this, not to get too heavy, not to put the weight of too much philosophy on top of this kind of light comedy, but this has always occurred to me. Every time I hear materialists talk about why people fall in love and the evolutionary reasons and the imagination, it's just their imagination, I always think of pen pal lovers because you don't have pheromones, You don't have, you might not have a picture in this. They don't know what the other person looks like. So they're falling in love with somebody without seeing them. There's not beauty. All those magazine articles about, oh, men like this face because it reflects health. It reflect. all you're getting is the soul of the person. And in fact, what makes this so fascinating is they don't like the physical presence of the person. They're at odds with the physical presence of the person while they're falling in love with the person's soul. And it is a beautiful illustration in a comic lighthearted way of how the imagination works. Because I've talked about the fact that the way I use the word imagination is kind of derived from the romantics. The imagination is not, oh, I'm making something up. I'm inventing a story. The imagination is where we experience those things that we can't see. So it's where you experience God. It's where you experience love. It's where you experience uh, countries that you've never been to. The imagination can be wrong. Or it can be right if you're in an email relationship with someone and you fall in love with them and you find out it's really, you know, you thought it was a a 20-year-old girl, it's really a 50-year-old guy who's catfishing you, you know, then your imagination did not adhere to reality, but if, in fact, it shows up, she shows up, and it's Meg Ryan, then you got it exactly right. What it, you know, that's a surprise. The same thing is true of God. You can have an imagination of God that's unreal or not adult or really is your father deified or really, you know, as Freud would have said, or is a, a childlike version of God, an old man in the clouds. You know, that's not gonna hold up as you go through some of the tragic parts of life and some of the more difficult parts of life, but as your imagination of God becomes more realistic You are actually communicating with the real God, and that is going to incredibly uh, uplift your life and uplift your heart. And all the people who say, well, it's just in your imagination, cannot explain how people fall in love through emails. And they do it all the time. All right. Send me an answer to my question on aclaven at dailywire.com, or just leave it on Facebook or YouTube if that's where you're paying attention. The Clavenless Weekend now begins, so I'm sorry. Many of you, I know, will not be coming back because people just do not survive the Clavenless Weekend. Enter into the eternal darkness where there is great wailing and gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth, but survivors gather here on Monday. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show.
2: see the British come, and there must have been a hundred of them on the drum. They stepped so high, and they made the bugles ring. We stood beside our cotton fields, didn't say a thing. We fired our guns, and the British kept for coming. There wasn't as many
1: as there was a while ago. We fired once more, and they began to run in. on down to Mississippi,
2: to the Gulf of Mexico. Old Hickory said we could take them by surprise. If we didn't fire muskets till we looked them in the eye. We held our the, well.
0: the Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and Makeup is by Jesua Alvera, and their animations are by Cynthia Angulo and Jacob Jackson. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire, forward publishing production, copyright forward publishing 2018.